Right, so Genesis chapter 9 is where we're at. And before I get started, I want to just do a little commercial for next week. Because next week is chapter 10, and it's pretty much all genealogies. Okay? Now, don't go read that and then think, oh, this is going to be really boring next week. There's some really good stuff that I'm going to cover and show you. There's a, uh, I, there's a lot of things that I want to teach on this because there's a lot of things people misunderstand about genealogies. And so they kind of miss the point of why they're there. They're not just there as filler. They're there for a reason, and there's stuff, too, that a lot of people get wrong on genealogies, which is causes them to get the wrong idea about certain weird doctrines. So there's good stuff to come next week, even though it's just genealogies. I guarantee it, so you don't, you don't want to miss that. But here, anyway, we're in chapter 9 right now, so notice what it says in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Okay, now... Another weird teaching that comes from the book of Genesis we covered a while back, uh, we covered before is the whole gap theory thing. And people will say, see how God told him to replenish the earth here, meaning to do it again because of the fact that, you know, God had just destroyed the world with the flood. And in Genesis 1.28, God told Adam to replenish the earth, proving that there had been another catastrophic event, you know, a flood is what the Rockmanites believe it is that destroyed the whole world. That's why Adam was told to replenish the earth. But remember, this command to replenish the earth is an ongoing commandment that will never be completely fulfilled because people are born and people die. Okay, so you cannot, this, we're still trying to replenish the earth, even today. Okay, so it's, it's just an ongoing command. Is it all? It, all it is, but people will go to this verse and then compare it to Genesis 1.28 and then try to use that to prove the gap theory. That's foolish. They just don't understand. They don't understand the command. They don't understand what God has commissioned man to do. God wants us to fill the earth, and God still wants us to fill, fill the earth. We're still doing it. We're still doing what God told Adam to do, and we're still doing what God told Noah to do. So in verse two, it says, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moved upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So this is a great command right here. You know, we are allowed to eat animals. And you know what's interesting, and we talked about this before, but when they went into the ark, there were the clean and there were the unclean animals. Okay, Now, once again, I said, what, what, was it the same as what we see in the law later that comes that God gave Moses? I imagine it was probably pretty similar, but here's the question, you know, were they not allowed to eat them then? Because God here is telling them, you're allowed to eat everything. And are we not allowed to eat everything today too? I mean, it's all sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. And that's just a, just a little side note that I just want to throw out here to you. Something you got to understand about the dietary law. There were some things in the Bible, because people say, oh, you want to do Leviticus 20.13, but you know, what about all the dietary laws? you got to understand, there were some things that were an abomination to God, and there were some things that God said, these are an abomination to you. Okay, for them, because God wanted them to be a set-apart people. God wanted them to be physically different than the rest of the world. That's why they had the circumcision. 
God wanted them to look different. That's why they had some of these things, you know, about the mixed fabrics and things like that. And one thing that is always very notable about cultures is the food they eat. And God wanted that to be different, too, because they were a sanctified, set-apart, holy people in a physical way. So God made a big deal about all those things. Now, we are a set-apart, sanctified people spiritually today. So we don't worry about the circumcision that is in the flesh. We worry about the circumcision of the heart. We do things in the spirit. You know, we're not worried about the dietary laws and things like that. God's not, God's not concerned about that. So, um, but it, you know, notice though here, this time before the law, even though there were clean and unclean animals, they were allowed to eat whatever they wanted. And it's the same thing today. That dietary law, it was for a specific people during a specific time. The time of Reformation came, and that is finished. And I'm glad because there's a lot of unclean animals that I think are very good. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful for bacon, things like that. So, But notice how he says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. All right? I believe this is why animals are instinctively scared of us. It is just in their instincts to run from man. Why? Because they know that man wants to eat them. Okay, you know, it's it's just in the genetic code, man. We uh, and that's why. What do we have to do to make animals not scared of us? We have to tame them. You have to you have to tame an animal, and it's a it can be a difficult process to do that. And then there's some animals, even if you tame them, you know you have them from the time they're born. Sometimes it's just still in their instinct to eat you. You know that's why. You know, I don't recommend getting a pet lion or a tiger or something like that because at some point, instincts are just going to kick in and that thing might just decide to eat you. So don't do that. The animals are scared of us for a reason because we've been hunting them since at least the time of Noah. And probably even some were doing it before that, I, I personally believe. So it says in verse 5, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, this is where we get the death penalty. Okay? The death, God clearly lays it out that the blood of man, it is required at the hand of every man and his brother. What does he mean by that? Because he also says too... He mentions that the hand of every beast, he mentions that too. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, if a beast kills a man, the beast should die. Okay? That's just, that. Uh, we see that in Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 28 and 29. If you want to turn over there, um, you can. Let me, it says, if an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall surely be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. But if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past and has been testified to his owner and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath, kept, that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and his owner also shall be put to death. Hey, now, why did God make such a big deal about that? It's just an animal. You know, animals are stupid. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe not, but you know what? The life of man is important to God. It is a sacred thing. And if an animal kills a man, that animal should die. And I don't care if it's your pet dog. If it goes and mauls some little kid and kills him, your dog should die. 
I don't care what animal it is. The monkey that ate the lady's face off, that monkey should die. Any animal that kills a person ought to die because life is sacred. Now, we live in a sick, twisted, perverted country that values the life of animals often more than the life of man. And they don't want to, you know, they would rather not put the dog to death. Well, you know, you got true bad. Listen, even if, even if they're being mean to it, okay, I understand some people ask for it and everything, but you know, we got to start valuing human life a little bit. We got to start valuing human life. And same thing too, if a man kills a man, if it's murder, blood needs to be shed. Man's blood needs to be shed. Why? Because if we don't, it brings a curse on the land. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 21. Now see, this is how important the, the life of man is to God. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates it. And, and I want to show you this too because I think this is one of the reasons that our country is in such a mess that it's in. And I believe... When we start reading these things too, we start to figure out why the tribulation and why the wrath of God is so extreme. Because you say, man, there's a lot of blood flowing when God pours out His wrath on the earth. There's a very good reason for that. We've got it coming. It says in Deuteronomy 21.1, says, If one be found slain in the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who hath slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. Now notice this here, because understand, God recognizes human government. God recognizes jurisdictions, town lines, and things like that. And God said, if you find a man who's been murdered, you measure, okay, maybe it's outside the city, whichever one it's closest to, it's in that jurisdiction. And it's important that the people in that jurisdiction get this right because if man, if, if blood is shed in our town, you know what? It's on our town. Our town needs to do something about it because it's important because it will bring a curse on our town. Let's keep that in mind. Verse three, and it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city shall take an heifer which hath not been wrought with and which hath not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. Notice they're shedding the blood of an animal. Why? Because blood needs to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's quoted in Hebrews, referring back to the Old Testament. Now, I understand it. this is an animal. If somebody murders somebody, can we go kill it? You know, kill an animal instead. No, this is what they did here to appease the wrath of God. Okay. And it was only because they didn't know who it was. So they're not going to just go kill another random human. Okay. God wanted the blood of the man to be shed, but if they didn't know who it was, they're not just going to go kill another person. Okay. So <clears throat> verse five says, and the priests and the sons of Levi shall come near for them. The Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him. And to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed. And lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. 
so shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, and thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So notice that even though no one knew who killed this person, innocent blood had been shed, and that means trouble for Israel. So God gave them the sacrifice that they could do, showing that we've done what we can. You know, there's nothing we can do. Because, you know, there's only so much that man can do. You all understand that? There's only so much that man can do. But so the thing is, we should, though, do everything we can do to avenge those who shed man's blood. And so because if we don't, it brings a curse on our land. And that is why I'm telling you, there is no doubt in my mind, America is going to be destroyed one of these days. So much blood has been shed just through abortion alone. And it doesn't get any more innocent than that. And not only that, we hardly ever even put murderers to death. You have to shed blood in order to make up for that. When innocent blood is shed, God's wrath is being built up. And our country has been doing nothing about it for years and years and years. And yet there's still going to be some people when God's pouring out his wrath on this earth because they've been going to liberal churches that don't teach the law, going to liberal churches that say only God is love and he doesn't care about that stuff. And, it, you, know, and you know, he took care of all that on the cross and so we don't need to do anything about that in the government. You know what those people are going to do? They're going to blaspheme him when all these plagues are being poured out upon him. Because in their minds, why would God do this to us? We don't deserve this. You better believe we deserve this. You better believe we've got it coming with all the blood that has been shed on this earth. And the death penalty, it was before the law that God gave Moses, and it should still be in effect today. And I, I'd love to spend time on this, but you all know the passages we preached on it before. Romans 13, 1-7 proves the death penalty is still a New Testament thing. That is why the Bible says, for this cause, pay tribute. That is what the government is there for, for the punishment of evildoers. 1 Peter 2, 13-15 proves it. Romans 1, 32 proves these things should still be in effect today. But you know what? we got just a bunch of Christians that are afraid to preach it. They don't want to preach Romans 1, 32. It says, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not we're worthy of death are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. First Peter 2.13, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now, let me just stop for a second. I, I probably shouldn't chase these rabbits, but I just can't help bring up these passages without pointing this out because people are so clueless and ignorant to it. The Bible says, submit yourself unto every ordinance of man. And when we see these things in the Bible too, notice how God specifies here, you know, when he's talking about the king is supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Y'all understand God has just showed us the purpose of that government, the purpose of these ordained leaders, the purposes of these ordinances is for the punishment of evildoers, which is something that God gave to man. Okay, now let's say our officials that we have put in power to do these very things, who are the ministers of God, let's say they now declare themselves authority in areas that God has not ordained. Do we then now have to biblically submit to those ordinances? No, they're completely out of line. 
Okay? For example, I'm a pastor. I have certain authority, don't I? God gave me that authority. So am I not an authority figure? Okay? So now what if I come in to your home now and I try telling your wife what to do? Do I have the authority to do that? Absolutely not. So that what the Bible talks about submitting to the pastor. Yes, in the area where God gave him authority. But if I step outside my realm of authority, you're not required to listen to me at that point. And when our government steps outside their area of authority, biblically, we don't have to listen to them. Okay? Now, some of us, we obey the government in areas where they have no biblical authority. Why? Because we're trying to live peaceably with all men. You know, not because we're rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's not Caesar's. Okay? The, the uh, taking care of, you know, the universal health care, that's not Caesar's. Okay? And I, and I don't have to biblically pay my taxes. And I'm not biblically rendering unto Caesar when I support that kind of thing. Now, I might choose to do it to stay out of jail. Okay? But, you know, I'm tired of all these clowns, you know, saying render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's. And they're talking about things that aren't Caesar's. Things that God never gave to Caesar. There are some things that he did give and we ought to do it. And so, and I'm not saying that you have to go disobey these things. Okay. If you want to obey those things because you want to stay out of jail, do it. Okay. I'm going to continue to pay my fees every year to stay out of jail in our free country because I'm going to pay the fees on the income I made to stay out of jail. And if you want to keep calling that a free country, go right ahead. But it's, it, it's ridiculous. But pe- people just don't understand these things. But the Bible's very clear what the government's role is. And if they want to step outside that, I, then don't tell me I have a biblical obligation to follow that. You no longer do. Okay? They, are out, they have made government something that God did not ordain. They have turned it into something else. Okay? Now, I, I, you know, the Bible says in Romans 13, you know, for this cause pay tribute. You know, I will gladly pay my taxes to pay the executioner's salary. All right? I'll, but, you know, these, some of these other people, you know, the politicians and things, you know, forget them. You know, but I'll, I'll gladly, you know, I think we ought to send Christmas bonuses to the, you know, voluntarily send Christmas bonuses to the executioners. The problem is, do we even have any? <laughs> and only, they're probably not very busy, so they probably don't need a whole lot of money. But anyway... I don't want to spend a lot of time on the death penalty, but I do believe that this is why the wrath of God is going to be so blood, bloody. Okay? And that's why, remember, even from Abel, the blood of thy brother, you know, thy, the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. God notices innocent blood that is shed, and He cares about that innocent blood, and blood needs to be shed. When that is done, there has to be consequences. So verse 7 says, And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, Neither shall the flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. 
I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all earth. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Now, I'm just going to throw an extra point in here that the Lord just gave me as I was reading this passage. But, you know, you ever wondered, you know, why they weren't allowed, you know, God, you know, never allowed, He didn't allow them to eat the animals before the flood, but He does let them eat the animals after the flood. You know, I've always kind of wondered about that and speculated a little bit, but here's the thing. All right? Because you, you got these people, you know, how could you eat one of God's creatures? Well, do you all re- realize that the reason God's creatures are still here is because man built a boat and helped protect them. So if it weren't for our great, great, great grandfather Noah, you know, we wouldn't have all these cows and all these things. They would all died out in the flood. So they're just lucky to be here. And they ought to be thankful to man for the time that they have. Right before we eat them. So, I don't know, just a little side note there. I might be pushing that a little bit there, but, you know, maybe that's why God changed his mind at that point. You know, hey, you helped me save my, save all of my creatures. Therefore, they are now your creatures. I'm giving them to you to eat. So, it's one great thing that Noah did. What a blessing that is. So, anyway, but let's now, let's, we need to, uh, it takes a couple minutes here to point out some things about this covenant that God made with Noah and this covenant that's with Noah, it's with Noah and his descendants. Okay. Now this is important to us because we are all Noah's descendants, aren't we? This includes all of us. So this promise that God gave to Noah is something that goes to us. Okay. We are a part of this. And so notice though, before this covenant, before Genesis nine, we see not so much covenants or blessings, but we see curses that God put on people that were on lines of people. First, the curse that God put on the ground for Adam's sake. Okay, We are all still dealing with that curse because we are descended from Adam. Remember, there was another curse that God put on Cain and his line, but we no longer have that because none of us are of Cain's line, are we? And so we're, we're very thankful for that. And, and people are trying to act like, too, these lines don't matter. Folks, these lines, they, they do matter. They did back then, especially. Okay? Today they don't because we're all of one blood, which you're going to see in a, in a little bit. But back then, these things mattered. These things that God would, these covenants that he would make, the curses that he would bring, they were on a people that would go on to their descendants, and they mattered. And they, and they lasted. They, they were they were real things, and we're going to see we're going to see another one too here in this chapter. That's that's what I really want to focus on. And so anyway, we have here a blessing though, or a promise for Noah's line that they will never be destroyed by a flood. And, and this is important because we are all part of this line. Now, this doesn't mean that I will never get flooded. Okay? I heard about a guy who gave up on God and quit believing one time because. God promised he'd never send the earth, you know, flood the earth again. And his basement got flooded three times. It's like, you know, God promised he's not going to destroy the earth again. God's not going to destroy mankind with a flood. 
again, that doesn't mean your basement's not going to get flooded or, or you're, you personally are not going to get flooded. Uh, you know, that's just, you know, going a little too far with it. And so, you know, think about this too. And what did God do? God, uh, he, he put the bow in the sky. The rainbow is there as a reminder. And think about that too, because for Noah and his family, what that must have meant to him when, you know, for 1656 years, it had never rained. All of a sudden, when it rained, what happened? The whole earth was destroyed. So imagine how they probably felt after they got out of the ark the first time it rained again. Okay, Even though God promised He would never destroy the earth again with a flood, I guarantee you they got a little freaked out when the rain start, started coming again. But then eventually, you know what that rain did? It stopped. The clouds opened up a little bit. The sun started shining. And all of a sudden they saw that rainbow. And then every time they were reminded, hey, we're going to be okay. God's not going to destroy us again with the flood. And I, I think it's a neat thing. It's a very beautiful thing. And I hate it that the queers have tried to hijack the rainbow. The rainbow is something that God put in the sky to remind man about his covenant that he made with them. It's a reminder to us that God keeps his promises. And God's not going to destroy the earth again. And notice what he said, with a flood. Notice that little part, too, because he is going to destroy the earth again with fire, though. And the very people flying around the rainbow flag, the fag flag, as I like to call it, they're going to be uh, they're going to take part in that judgment. And but they deny the flood. We talked about that because if they admit God destroyed the earth with the flood, like he said, then they have to admit he's probably going to destroy the earth again with fire, like he said. So in verse 18, it says, And the sons of Noah went forth of the ark, were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Okay, now it's important that we ask ourselves here, why did God mention Canaan here? <clears throat> and why did God even put the story here in the Bible about, Cain, about Ham and what he does that we're about to look at? You know, this is a kind of a weird story. And it seems like a very random story, doesn't it? But remember, again, as we go through the book of Genesis, unlike all the weirdos that want to teach goofiness and craziness from the book of Genesis and just want to isolate a chapter and isolate a passage to tell their own story and go their own direction with, what are we doing? We're looking at the big picture here. We're looking at the, the, the whole thing, you know, the whole book as a whole. And so there's reasons. Whenever we get to these genealogies, these genealogies are being mentioned for a reason. And if you do not understand the reason for these things, later on when you're reading about these people in the Scripture, you might just see that again as some kind of random story or whatever, or you're not gonna, there's things you're not going to understand about it. And that's what's happening because people are just isolating certain parts of the Bible, getting what they want to from it, especially Genesis chapter 6. Instead of looking at the big picture. So Shem, he had a bunch of kids. We're going to see them in uh, chapters 10. You know, same thing with Japheth. You know, Ham had several, but he mentions Canaan specifically. Why? Because this story that we're about to see here is how Canaan got cursed. Because many people, too, they read about the Exodus and about the children of Israel coming to the promised land and then book of Joshua and how God told them, wipe out the Canaanites. It's like, man, that's mean. You know, what did the Canaanites ever do? They were a cursed people. 
And people are doing all they can to try to make God look good in the story, trying to teach that they had Nephilim DNA in them and stuff, and that's why God had to wipe them out. You know, there's a lot of things like that, but uh, there's, there's very good reason. But let's go ahead and read the rest of the story. So it says, Now these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Now there's three theories about what happened here. Okay, because, you know, it's, it's not real clear what happened. You know, a lot of people teach that Ham was a sodomite, and he, he very well may have been. That, that, that's one of the theories for sure. But one theory is just that Ham looked, you know, when he should have just looked away. And worse, he looks at his father's nakedness, and then he goes and he tells his brothers about it. You know, basically, you know, so he's going to, you know, probably want them to go look too, like this is funny or something. You know, like some kind of pervert. Uh, so that's one theory because that's really all that says. All that the passage actually says is that he saw his father na- his father's nakedness and told his brethren without. So that very may well be all that he did. You know, according, that's all that it says that he did. But there's another theory that he committed a, social, a homosexual act with his father. And you say, who would do that? A queer. Okay. A queer will do anything. A queer will do anything. But, you know, it's not clear. But here's the thing, too, you got to understand. When the Bible deals with sexual things, it's often vague in how it's written. It's careful about how it writes it. You know, when it's talking about Adam, how he knew his wife, that's a very tame way to put it. Okay? And I think, you know, and, and we see that commonly throughout the Bible. You know, when the men of Sodom are trying to get to the angels, you know, bring them out that we may know them. That's how the Bible puts it. So it often does that. So when it's saying this here, he very well, you know, it it still could be that. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter exactly what he did. That's The Bible isn't trying to tell us a story of exactly what he did. It's just showing us how Canaan got cursed. Okay. So now look at, and then the third, the third theory though, this one's pretty rare. But at the same time, too, I can't call it crazy because uh, they've actually got some scripture you can use to back it up a little bit. But a third theory is that Ham actually went and did something with his mother. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, Leviticus 18.8 says, The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. So right here the Bible says, you know, your father's wife's nakedness is the father's nakedness. So you could use that verse to say that no, it was actually his mother because two, Noah doesn't curse Ham, he cursed Canaan. Okay? Because that's what, that's what he does after he awakes and he realizes what his younger son had done. He said, and cursed be Canaan. Well, what did Canaan do? Why couldn't he have cursed Ham, he's the one that did something, but he curses Canaan. And, you know, and so some think, because he actually got his mom pregnant, 
And therefore, uh, that was just kind of, you know, because that was such a horrible act and just a disgusting thing, you know, they were just kind of a cursed people. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But here's the other thing, too, though. The name Canaan, it means humiliated. And that's what exactly what happened when Cain saw the nakedness of his father. He was humiliated. So my question is, so Noah named Ham's son? That seems kind of weird, but maybe he got away with it because, you know, he was the leader during that time, or maybe it was because since his wife's the one that had the baby. You know, I don't know for sure, but that name Canaan means humiliated. And so some, a lot of people think that, you know, Canaan came about because of, you know, this terrible act. And so Noah put this curse on him because this was a humiliating thing. So, you know, either way, you know, I'm not going to fight with people over exactly what happened because the Bible isn't real clear. We just know Ham was a pervert. Ham did something really bad, something that was very disrespectful, where Japheth and Shem, they were respectful. They went, and instead of exposing the nakedness of their father, what did they do? They went and they covered the nakedness of their father, going, walking in backwards, making sure they didn't see him. That was a very good thing. And so in verse 26, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant, and God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. So now right here, though, is another area where it's really easy to start creating weird doctrines about race and things. Okay, I've heard, I've heard people out there teach that you know that's where black people came from. They came from Canaan, and that was the curse. I've heard I have heard preachers, usually from the Schofield Bible Belt, preach things like that, and therefore that's why they were slaves and things like that. Because you know, said a servant of servants shall he be. Folks, first off. The Canaanites are not even where you know the black race came from. Okay, so that's just foolishness right there. You know, but at the same time too, either way you spin it, all right, we're in the New Testament now, and that no longer matters. Okay, so to use something like that as some kind of excuse is just messed up. And a lot of these just nut job Schofield Bible Belt Southern preachers are still very racist. It's just, it's a real, it's a real thing down in the South and stuff like that used to be preached all the time. So it is important we remember that this verse, though, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the point of this story, like many stories in Genesis, is showing us the origin of different nations that play a major role later in the Bible. And this particular nation here, probably became the greatest enemies that Israel ever had. They were a thorn in the flesh of Israel. I mean, for centuries. And especially when the book of Genesis was written. Because the book of Genesis is a book of Moses. God gave this to Moses. You know, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He gave this. He wrote these things right before they went into the promised land where they were going to, where they were supposed to drive out the Canaanites. So this story here would have been very relevant and very important to them during that time. Because these are the people God's telling them, I want you to get rid of these people. I want you to drive them out of the land. This is where they came from. This is a bad group of people. Say, well, it's not their fault with their great-great-granddad. Well, you know what? The Canaanites themselves were wicked. And there's plenty of evidence of that in the Bible. I mean, they're sacrificing their own children 
That's the type of thing the Canaanites did. They were a very wicked people. So God gave them this book the same time they were supposed to go get rid of them. That's why this story would have been very important. God put this in here for a reason. So what about the Canaanites today then? All right. What about the Canaanites today? Because who are they? You know, are there any Canaanites left today? So now they're all gone. Well, in chapter 10, we see Ashkenaz, which is where we say the Ashkenazi Jews all come from. We still think they're around. Where's the Canaanites at? Okay. Where are the Canaanites? You know, they're always going to be around. Proof that they're always going to be around is in Zechariah. Chapter 14 and verse 21, Yet every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. This is talking about something in the future, and the Canaanites aren't going to be allowed in. So therefore, there's obviously still some Canaanites around, right? You all remember Zechariah? We did a study through that whole book. What's this all about? All right, so let's let's understand the Canaanites today. So first off, there's only three mentions of Canaan or Canaanites in the New Testament. Two of them are in reference to Simon the Canaanite, one of Jesus' disciples, which is interesting. If no Canaanites are going to be allowed in the house of the Lord, why would he have one of them as his disciple? And some people try to say, well, he wasn't a Canaanite; he was of Cana of Galilee. Okay, fine. Well, you know. For the, I don't even need him to be a Canaanite for this argument here. Okay, We'll just give you that one. But the only other mention of Canaanite is in Matthew 15, verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried on him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Jesus is ignoring this poor Canaanite woman. Wasn't that racist? Well, you know, the Jews actually weren't, they didn't treat them very good. They weren't supposed to. She was lucky to still be alive. Had they followed the commands in the Old Testament, she'd have never been born. Jesus here, he's ignoring her. Then she came, then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Wow. A racial slur from Jesus. You know, we get in trouble for calling queers dogs. Jesus called a woman a dog just because she was a Canaanite. You know, think about think about that for a minute. And it said, but she and she said, "Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table." Then Jesus answered and said to her, "O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt." And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. I wish I could spend some time talking about the significance of that passage, but we don't have time and, and what all that meant. But notice how even in the New Testament, Jesus is ignoring this Canaanite woman. He calls her a dog, but he ended up healing her. Now, what's interesting is why did he heal her, her son? Because of her faith. Okay? Her faith. Her faith is what pleased him there. But now, before we kind of explain that, let's look at this last mention. The last mention of Canaanite in the Bible is in Zechariah 14 that we just read. The very last verse in the last chapter of Zechariah. And it's talking about the future. It says in verse 20, In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. So, 
It's important that we remember this verse in Zechariah 14. It is an Old Testament prophecy that was not fulfilled under the terms of the Old Covenant. Okay? Many things that we read in Zechariah were not fulfilled and will never be fulfilled under the terms of the Old Covenant. However, everything in Zechariah will be fulfilled under the terms of the New Covenant. Right? Because Jesus replaced those things and He brought in a new and a better covenant. So in Zechariah, it would make sense that He would bring that up how there was going to be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord. You know, that because they were supposed to have them completely out of the land. Alright? So, we need to understand though, under the New Covenant, we have all been made of one blood. And physical bloodlines and genealogies no longer matter. Okay? Because, and I, I don't have a whole lot of time for this. But remember, God chose a people. God chose a nation. And folks, it was a physical people. It was those of Abraham. It was, in many ways, a bloodline. It was a physical people. However, we learn in the New Testament there was always that spiritual element too. There was those people that were of faith. But understand, they got replaced. The people of God are no longer a physical people, but a spiritual people. And that is why Jesus, knowing that's how it's going to be, ended up healing this woman's son because of her great faith. And just like He did with many Gentiles. But today, these things do not matter at all. What matters is the works you do. The reason the Ashkenazi Jews over in Israel are under the curses that are going to come on you know, the physical Israel is not because of their bloodline. Chances are they don't have the right bloodline, but they do have the same works. They hate Christ. You know, they rejected Him as a Messiah. They're Antichrist. Therefore, they are going to get those things. And if you decided, even though if you went and did a blood test and you had no Jewish blood in you, and you moved over to Israel, you grew, grew some curly locks, started banging your head against the wall, and doing all that stuff, and, you know, be, becoming an Antichrist, you would get the same thing too. Not because of your bloodline, but because of your works, because of the things you're doing. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, because when Jesus died on the cross... You know, and he got rid of those carnal ordinances. He, I mean, he broke down that middle wall partition. He took care of all those things that were contrary to us. And so now in verse 24, it says, And God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations." of men for to dwell in the face of the earth and at the term of the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So why does it mention that? Because bloodlines did matter in many ways in the Old Testament. Not really for salvation because there was a way, even if you weren't of the right bloodline, to become a Jew. There were still ways and we still see exceptions and all kinds of great examples, but those things did matter. They weren't supposed to be intermarrying with the Moabites. But there was even exceptions there because we have Ruth, the Moabite. You know, we have we have all there's all kinds of examples of exceptions in the Old Testament because God's showing a picture of some things that were to come to help us understand these things. But these things did matter, and that is why you see the Canaanites 
getting treated pretty bad in the Old Testament. They were a bad people. But you know what? If you found out today that you were a descendant of Canaan and that you were a Canaanite, you know what? It wouldn't matter. We wouldn't kick you out of the church. It, we wouldn't. We, it, it, those things do not matter. The only bloodline that matters now is Jesus Christ. That's the only genealogy that matters. Are you in Christ? Doesn't matter what who your dad is, your granddad, or anything like that. Are you in Christ? Is God your Father? That is what is important. So in verse twenty-eight, it says that Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years, and all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. Now understand this too. This is something. This, this is something I originally learned listening to Patch of Pirate. All right, I was listening to Patch of Pirate. It was. Um, the one where they were going back in time. Not the Great American Time Machine. Uh, it was one about creation and stuff. And they go back and see Adam and Eve. But they're, one of them, they go to the Tower of Babel. And Noah was there. And telling people they shouldn't build the tower and all these things. And I'm like, what is Noah doing at the Tower of Babel? Noah was, would have been dead by that time, right? No, actually, he wouldn't have. Okay. Now, we read about Noah's death in chapter 9, but it says he lived 350 years after the flood. Do you all realize if you do the math on that, Noah lived until the year 2006, 2006 years after creation. That's just two years before Abraham was born. Noah lived almost until Abraham was born. So now we don't see him in chapter 11 when we're reading about the Tower of Babel just because he's just not in that story. You know, Noah does not play any other significant role in the Bible after that, but he was still alive. He was still walking the earth during that time. And I'd like to think he'd have been there at the Tower of Babel telling him, don't do these things. You'd think everybody would have listened since he's the oldest guy on earth. He's their great, 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 great grandfather. He's the guy who knew the old world. He's the one that God chose to save the whole world. But you know, the Bible doesn't tell us what all was going on. We can only speculate about what all happened, but it is interesting to think about. Noah was still around. You know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem definitely was. Ham and Japheth probably were around during that time too. We don't know for sure, but it says all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So, you know, Noah died years after the Tower of Babel, only two years before the birth of Abraham. And so Genesis 9, though, what we're seeing here at the end of this of this chapter or what really what we all always see in this chapter is really God instituting human government and then we see the curse of Canaan. And God is showing that you know not to teach us weird things about race. Okay? The Lord changed all the, that in the new covenant. That kind of thing does not matter anymore and you know I wish our country would stop making such a big deal about race. I'm getting real tired of hearing everybody talk about, you know, I've been following the election stuff a little bit, and everybody talking about, you know, Joe Biden and the black vote, you know, and you know, Democrats got to get the black vote. And, you know, it's, like, it's like, you know, I would be insulted if, you know, everybody just expected me to vote a certain way because of my race. I thought we weren't supposed to stereotype. You know, but they just, they just all assume that because of the color of these people's skin, they're all going to vote a certain way. But you know what's funny? That's usually what happens. You know, everybody thinks they're the exception, but nobody acts like the ex exception. And, you know, I'm sick of the news media shoving this junk down our throats. But, you know, it's really pathetic when that kind of junk is going on and being preached in churches. 
And I'm telling you, and it's always been preachers south of the Mason-Dixon line. I have heard some of the weirdest, most messed up, most racist junk that you can imagine preached on race. And it's usually all centered around the book of Genesis. And we might talk a little more about that too after the Tower of Babel and after God started dividing the nations and everything and uh, hopefully maybe get into some of the weird teachings Phil Kidd has on that uh, who has some... you know, And I'm not quick to use the term racist. I think that term gets thrown around way too much. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of Baptist preachers that are flat out racist. And it's, it's not right. Uh, I don't agree with it. I don't support it. And, uh, it. and if you go to Genesis 9... 10 and 11, things like that, to try to teach that kind of stuff. I'm just going to call you an idiot and a moron, and you have no idea. You have no idea how to interpret the Bible. You have no idea. Again, people who want to teach weird racial stuff, like Brian Denlinger, you know, he's still teaching that stuff, and he's from north of the Mason-Dixon line, about as far north as you can get. Guys, guys like him, they are isolating the Scriptures Instead of looking at the big picture so they can teach what they want from that passage. And that's why it's important we go through these things the way we are so we can get a look at the big picture and see why these stories are there. They are, they are important. So uh, we'll see a lot, examples of a lot of that next week when you're reading all those names. You know, you need to make some notes as we go through there because these people play a role later on. And the Nephilim crowd skipping chapter 10. Because there's some stuff in there that's not going to help their doctrine. So anyway, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for all your blessings. And I pray you'll help us to uh, learn from this passage here, Lord. I pray that we won't get caught up in uh, the weird teachings of race that's going on in churches today. And I pray that we'll uh, read the scriptures and interpret them the way you want us to. That we'll get what we're supposed to get from them instead of just going trying to find what we want. I just pray that these uh, things will be a help. In your name we pray. Amen.